Uh, yes, I was gone last weekend to dedicate my uh, youngest granddaughter. Had a great time with the grandkids, and on Sunday morning, my youngest granddaughter had woke up with a fever and the stomach flu. So it turned into a great vacation. So <laughs> got to play with the grandkids. Let's uh, pray before we jump into Philippians. Father, we... Um, Lord, we stop and lift up to you today all the conflict going on in our world. Lord, um, as I read the headlines, I'm more and more grateful that you are God and that we can trust you because I don't think there's anybody alive that knows how to solve, resolve all these issues. Father, I pray that what's happening with North Korea is actually legitimate, that they want to denuclearize. Help us, Father, as a world to move toward peace, Um, because that's what we desire. But Father, yet we're very aware that there are people all around the world being oppressed. Help us as Christians to have wisdom, to know the right way to pray and the right way to think about this. And Father, we ask that uh, your grace would be very real and the, uh, the leaders of our country, from our president all the way down to our local magistrates, uh, the, the men and women that have chosen a career to help us as citizens, to serve us. So, Lord, I pray that you would, you would uh, bless them, you would be gracious to them, and you would give them wisdom to know how to lead us well. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. How many of you just at some level intuitively feel like uh, the morality in our country is degrading, it's declining? Let me see. (laughs) I saw several of you roll your eyes just when I asked the question. Like, duh. (laughs) It, It just, it feels uncomfortable, doesn't it, to us? Things that are happening over and over again, more, more frequently than ever before we've ever seen. If you had told me when I was a boy the things that we had seen just this week would be happening, I would have been appalled. Uh, three school shootings just this week alone, over 20 since the January. Uh, something's wrong. Something is not right. And um, everywhere I look around me, I feel, I just feel that, that sense that, that our nation is really struggling at very deep levels. Today we're going to start a new series, uh, A Servant's Heart. We're going to look at the book of Philippians. This is the last series before the amphitheater. And um, we're going to be taking a look through Philippians. Philippians is one of my favorite books talking about the servanthood aspects, servanthood of Jesus and servanthood of who we are. And uh, I think you'll find as is everything we've looked at over the last five years, that you're going to find many places where Jesus, I mean, where Paul was very countercultural. He's speaking into a culture with its own history. And we're going to look at some of that today. And um, it's a big, it's a big book. We just finished singing a song. When death was arrested and my life began. All these threads hopefully going to come together. I just planted two or three at the same time. When death was arrested and my life began. It's, it's easy for us to think in terms of, well, here's my life. And somewhere along there, I, I started going to church and I found Jesus and all of that. But theologically, what really happened was you were dead. You were dead. And when you found Jesus, your life began. We, we tend to use, when I mention the word eternal life, 
what tends to happen is you tend to think of eternity. But eternal is just an adjective that belongs to the word life. What you should be focusing on is life. Life. We're getting ready to go into the amphitheater as soon as we finish the series. And this series is designed to connect the dots where we've come, a radical response to where we're headed. We're about to have to serve a whole lot of people that are coming here. We're a resort community. This is the life of a resort community. I'm finally used to it. And uh, we have people coming that are tired and they're exhausted. They're weary. They're stressed out and they're coming on vacation. And we have the privilege of serving them. And so we just thought this is a great study to help prepare us as we wind our way down from where we've come in the last five or six months. Um, Life began. You You could attach a lot of adjectives to the word life, joyful life, challenging life, holy life, Eternal life is just an adjective that says that the life that we experience goes on for eternity. That is a good thing. When death was arrested, my life began. And our life began at that point. It's just a good way of looking at it. We're going to see all these threads kind of woven through here. We said in the last series that the exile had ended, that at the end of the Old Testament that we knew that the exile had not formally ended, even though the Israelites were back in the land, because the glory of the Lord did not return. So they symbolized the glory of the Lord with the candles. But the glory of the Lord had not returned. And And the reason why the glory of the Lord left, Ezekiel 10, was because of sin. Therefore, sin had not been forgiven. So it wasn't until sin is forgiven that the glory of the Lord comes back. And that's what happened with Jesus. John 1.14, flesh, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his, what's the word? Glory. The glory of the Lord returned, so the exile ended. So every place we go in the New Testament and we begin to look, we see life anew. Uh, death was arrested, my life began. Something new is going on. Now, it's very typical to start with uh, the background of Philippians. We're not going to instead start weaving in background pieces throughout each Sunday as it connects with various paragraphs, various sections of Philippians. So we're not going to start there. We're going to start instead by asking, what, what is a servant? And let's just start right in Philippians 1. What is a servant? Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. A servant, what is it? A servant is a slave. A servant is a slave. Now look with me in verse 6. Because this is probably the heart and backbone, the soul of Philippians. Because it relates to how we interact with God. He who began a good work in us, in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. How many of you have heard... Remember that verse, heard it before. Most of you? Okay. It's a very familiar verse. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Typically, when we think of this verse, we tend to think of the work that God is doing in our lives, right? That he started something good and he's going to continue it. That's true. That's just not what this verse is talking about. Okay. It is true, as we see through Philippians, that what happens for you as an individual is very, very important. But this verse says something a little bit different. He who began a good work, singular, in you, plural. 
I've said all along, we need a Texas version of the Bible. He who began a good work in y'all. It's a very sad thing that in English, you communicates both singular and plural. Uh, The old King James actually did a better job than any of the modern translations of differentiating between that. But this is plural. He who began a good work in y'all, in you, in us as a church. God is a finisher. But what is he a finisher of? What is this good work that he's going to finish? I think this good work is the promise to Abraham. I'm going to bless all the nations through you. We've talked about that missional language. That's a word that's very common today. We are a missional church, the mission of God. The mission of God is to bless all the nations and to reach the world. That's the heart of the gospel. This is the good work that he's going to finish. He's going to continue to shape us into a more effective, better instrument to be used by him to bless the nations than ever before. We as a church... That's what he's going to do. Yes, he's doing it in your lives. That's a necessary part. But let's don't lose track of the fact that what he's talking about is us as an entire church. This is a good thing. He will complete his mission. And however, to do this, he has to work in our individual lives. We've had several sermons over the last three months about the work that God's doing in our lives. And I've asked you several times, I'll ask you again, are you ready for that? Are you really ready for God to continue the work in your life to make you a part of a bigger whole? Um, it's not easy. It's challenging. It's daunting. We read it two or three weeks ago, 2 Corinthians 4, where he says four times that we carry around the suffering of Jesus. He might be revealed. And we ask, revealed to whom? Revealed to you. That's why we suffer. That's why. So when I ask the question, are you actually ready for God to keep doing work in your life? Be careful how you answer that question. Three years ago when I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, I didn't want cancer. I cried, just like most of you probably would, in shock, and yet have cancer. It didn't take me very long to get to the place where I kind of smiled and said, okay, God, everybody in my church is just about to find out I have cancer. What are you going to do with this church? Why did you do this? What are you going to do in their lives with me? That's what this is all about. He will complete his mission, and he's going to do it through our individual lives. Okay, now back to verse 1. Servants of Christ Jesus, the story begins with a real simple truth. We are slaves. We like to soften it and put the word servant in there. But in the first century world, there wasn't such a thing as servants. You're either a slave or a free person. You're owned by somebody or you're free. It's that simple. We have a, the concept of service. Where we're going to get to that later on, why they use this word. It is good. But I want to start with the premise that we are slaves. That's what we are. This is at the heart of being a servant. Now, a slave in our culture has a very negative term. This is not the kind of slavery where you're imprisoned against your will and where you're abused and all that. No, it's something very different. This is uh, showing the movement. We were slaves to sin, Romans 6. In other words, we only knew how to do bad things, evil things, sinful things, to live in the context of sin. And we have been brought out of that, Romans 6, and now we are slaves to righteousness. One of those fancy words. We use it all the time. 
And but yet most of us have a hard time really defining it. We're going to come back to that a little bit later on today and start defining words uh, righteousness again. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're now slaves to righteousness. And as Philippians begins to unfold, we're going to learn what it really means for us to be servants. And it's going to be woven all through there. It's going to be woven through examples. We're going to talk about Epaphroditus, and we're going to talk about Jesus, and we're going to talk about some of the commands on what it looks like to be a servant, but we're also going to look at the examples of Paul himself. That's what we're going to do this morning, to capture a a bigger picture of what it means. Being a slave means something different than enslavement. Next thing he says is, to God's holy people. Some of your translation says, to the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So we use the word saint. That's the same word, root word for the word holy. So he starts off by telling us something very unique about us. Now, Philippi, this is the first city in Europe to hear the gospel. When Paul left and crossed over the sea, this is the first city, Acts 16, in Europe to hear the gospel. So these, in a sense, we're going to see in a minute, these words are actually very familiar to them in the political context, but Paul's using them in a very different context. So when I say holy, what do you think of? One of the things I love to do with students in the classroom is ask the question, how holy do you have to be to enter God's presence? Well, they get the answer right, 100% holy. So then I ask the question, okay, how holy are you? And all of a sudden it becomes very awkward. Are you 32% holy? Maybe you're like our elders, 80-something percent. Or maybe you're like our wives, 90-something percent. How holy are you? That begins to surface the real issues around holiness. If it requires 100% holiness to enter God's presence, then there's only one answer. You're 100% holy. The problem is, is we struggle to make sense of that word in our language because we mesh it together with a whole bunch of other concepts. If I were to hold up two water bottles and say, this one is going to be holy from now on, what changes about those two bottles? Does the chemical makeup change? Does the quality of the water somehow become magical? No. What changes is purpose. That's what's different. That's why the author of Hebrews could say in Hebrews 10, By the will of God, you have been declared holy once for all time. That's why Paul can say to God's holy people in Christ Jesus. No, he's not talking about the pastors. Although Mark does a pretty good job of being holy. Welcome back, Mark. Nice and tan from vacation. (laughs) That's why he can say that. Is because we are holy. And so this, it begins with the concept of slaves, but it's more than that. We are saints, and it's more than that. We are saints together. We are holy people who live together in a community of faith. And the background of this is Acts 16, where Paul lived out his holiness. He lived it out. Remember the story of Acts 16? Paul goes to Philippi, and he and Silas are walking around, and he, uh, there's no synagogue there, so that's an evidence there's not at least 10 Jewish men, because when there were 10 Jewish men, they had a place of worship. So he goes down to the uh, river, and he finds the women there. Lydia, for example, we're going to hear about her later on. And um, so he begins to share Christ with them. And there's a slave girl following them around, prophesying. And he's driving Paul crazy. Pretty soon, Paul just turns around and says, get out of that girl, and the demon leaves. Well, that was a mistake. Because she was making her owners lots and lots of money. Okay? And so by making them lots of money, 
they weren't very happy. Because now she's just a normal healed girl. And so they drag Paul and Silas before the courts and they beat them. They beat them severely, it says. This is not a light beating. This is one of Paul's harsh beatings that he talks about. He adds the word. Then they throw him into prison. And what would you do if you were thrown into a cave after being beat severely? Would it cross your mind that it's time to start singing praise songs to Jesus? But that's what Paul and Silas start to do. They start to sing, and at midnight, big earthquake, and the jail doors fall off. And so the, the uh, uh, guy that's in charge, the jailer, runs out and he realizes the, the, the doors have fallen off. And he pulls his sword and starts to kill himself. Because you know what the punishment is for losing a prisoner? Your life for theirs. Might as well kill yourself now. Avoid the, tor- the, the punishment. So as he's getting ready to kill himself, Paul says, No, 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 no. Don't leave yet. We're all in here. He is astounded. No normal human would stay after being beat severely. And he just falls on his knees and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And he says, believe in Jesus. It's that simple. The very next day, the uh, town magistrates say, okay, you release them in. They've learned their lesson. Paul says, yeah, I don't think so. It's one of my favorite passages. He said, they... Uh, decided to beat us and throw us in prison, even though we are Roman citizens. And in that one second, their lives were in his hand. Because the punishment for beating a Roman citizen without due process was death. He owned them. Of course, they're terrified. He's not interested in ending their life. He's interested in furthering the mission of God. Ooh, little hint about what we exist for. That's the story, the backstory. And the church is planted, and we have the privilege of reading it. We start off with this idea is that we are slaves, but it quickly begins to move from there. We're going to learn four things about slavery just in this early passage. The, second, the next thing we learn is that a slave blesses in verse 2. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very standard language. I read it. Most of you are already thinking about fantasy football scores or what you're going to have for lunch, right? You read this all the time. This is an astounding statement here. It's absolutely astounding. You see, this is what priests did. Priests blessed the people. Remember, the priest does three things from the Old Testament. He introduces God to the people, introduces the people to God, and he blesses them. This is a blessing, but it's more than a blessing. This is a statement about the new covenant, grace and peace. When death was arrested, my life began. Grace and peace. You begin to experience shalom and grace in ways that you've never experienced them before. Some of you have heard this story. I've told it a couple of times lately. When I decided to join the Navy, I finished high school with a very bad GPA. Um, very, very bad. I shouldn't have graduated, but it's the end of the Vietnam era, so everybody got a waiver, and everybody got to graduate. I didn't meet the requirements. On top of that, I failed physics, chemistry, failed, uh, got D's in geometry and algebra. So I went down to the recruiter. I couldn't go to college and said, I want to join the Navy. And he said, great, go into the nuclear program. I said, I want to get on submarines. He said, that's the perfect program to get on submarines. Well, I just told you I failed physics, chemistry. So I get to the, I, so I have scheduled a test to get into the nuclear program. You have to pass the test. So they give me a piece of paper with a bunch of questions on it, um, a pencil and a slide rule. I have no idea what a slide rule is. I read through it. I couldn't answer a single question. So being the right guy that I am, 
I noticed that there's a multiple choice exam. So I looked at the clock, and whatever quadrant the second hand was in, A, B, C, or D. Oh, that's an A. That's a C. I passed. I did not realize that the Lord was already directing my steps. I was not a Christian. I have since learned to see God's handiwork in other people's lives where they can't see it. So I made it through boot camp, made it through A school. I get to nuclear power school. And this time on opening day, they give you a true assessment exam. It's not multiple choice. You still get a slide rule, and I still didn't know what it was. I got a zero. So the next day, my chief calls me in. Howard, you have no idea what you're doing. That's not quite what he said. It was a little more flowery than that. But that's the sanitized version. I said, you're right, chief, I don't. I don't know how in the world you made it into this program. I discovered really quickly I was, a, I was among the nation's elites, and I was not one of them. And so he said, but the Navy has a gift for you. They sent me back to math and science remedial school, seven days a week, seven weeks, 49 days, 12 hours a day. I got four days off to do my laundry. And oh, by the way, if you get below a 3.0, you spend 14 hours a day. If you get below a 2.8, then uh, there's a cot next door and you can sleep here at 16 hours a day. Oh, and if you get below below a 2.5, you get to paint the holes of ships for the next six years. So I learned math and science. I got to cram down my throat. I had no idea that the Lord was demonstrating grace and he was guiding me. I wasn't a Christian. I couldn't sense that. So after I made it through nuclear power school, uh, I did. I went back and passed the interest exam and passed fine after that. That's where I actually learned to study, which allowed me to prepare me to go on later on to college. Then I, uh, uh, the military lets you kind of pick where you want to go. So my first choice was a fast attack nuclear submarine out of Charleston, South Carolina. Second choice was a fast attack out of New London, Connecticut. My third choice was a fleet ballistic missile submarine out of Norfolk, Virginia. I got a cruiser out of San Diego. (laughs) That's where I met my first wife. The Lord was at work. When death was arrested, what happened? Say it out loud. My life began. The Lord was involved in my life. Grace, this is not just a saying. But it's even bigger than that, that he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The moment he adds the word Lord, everything changes. Everything in this culture changes. You see, this is Philippi, part of the Roman culture. Philippi, was, Acts 16 says, was a Roman colony and leading, a leading city in that district of Macedonia. It was the first city in Europe to hear the good news. In Philippi, the Roman aristocracy flourished. It was a little, it was a little Rome, if you will. Uh, you'll find out later on. It was a very popular city among the emperors, and they had temples everywhere. Um, the mo- it was modeled after the mother city, Rome. There were temples to the Greek, Phrygian, and Egyptian gods, but the Roman imperial cult was the most prominent religion. The architecture was all shaped after Rome. The Roman imperial means that the emperor was seen as God, and so you had to worship the emperor. He was called, you had to say, uh, 
Caesar is Lord. That was minted on their coins. I'm going to read to you something out of a book by Michael Paul, a New Testament scholar that I really enjoy. Um, Around the time of the birth of Jesus, during the reign of Emperor Augustus, the following message was inscribed in stone in prominent places throughout the Roman province of Asia Minor. They didn't have newspapers, and so they inscribed things. And this is an example in Asia Minor. We had the same things in Greece and Macedonia, but for different reasons. And it was giving the reasons why Asia Minor decided to change their calendaring system. Here's the quote. Since the providence, that's like the higher power, okay, a very impersonal God. Since the providence that has divinely ordered our existence has applied her energy and zeal and has brought to life the most perfect good in Augustus, that's Caesar, whom she filled with virtues for the benefit of humanity, bestowing upon him bestowing him upon us and our descendants as a savior. Okay? Christianity is not using new terms. It's redefining cultural terms. So he's been bestowed on us as a savior. He who put an end to war and will order peace, Caesar, who by his appearance exceeded the hopes who had prophesied the gospel. Good news. Even Rome had a gospel. Not only outdoing benefactors of the past, but also allowing no hope of a greater benefactor in the future. In other words, he's perfect. And since the birthday of the God first brought to the world the gospel, the good news residing in Caesar, with good fortune and safety, the Greeks of Asia have decided that the uh, the new year should be changed to match his birthday. This is right out of the first century. This is an inscription. This is what the people in Philippi were raised with. This is what they were raised with. This is only one prominent example of the sort of imperial propaganda one encountered in the first century AD. The Roman emperors, particularly those judged after the fact to have been good for the empire, could be described according to a standard narrative. Their birth was foretold by heavenly signs. Now remember, this is giving them credit after the fact. Their accession to the empire was marked by providential uh, guidelines. Their accomplishments were acts of divine genius. Their royal visits were the arrival of the gods, and their death was their full entrance into deity. The Caesar represented the gods. All of these are potential elements of the gospel, insofar that they contributed the gospel of Rome, by the way, as they contributed to the greatest of Roman goals, peace, security for the many, bringing ease and comfort for the privileged few, Of course, this perpetual pursuit of peace and continual quest, we now know, for comfort, only happened on the backs of the conquered, the enslaved, the oppressed, the overtaxed, the impoverished, and the crucified. This was the gospel of Rome. And they were expected to say, Caesar is Lord. So the moment Paul comes along and says, no, Jesus is Lord, everything changed. You see, refusal to participate in the Roman imperial cult was seen as subversive and often led to your death. So these Christians are learning what it means to be slaves of righteousness by putting their lives on the line. I'm grateful that God has not asked us to do that. He's asked us to live for him rather than die for him. But then in verse 3, a slave 
is a partner in the mission of God. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you, all of you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all for the the affection of Christ Jesus. This is his prayer. We typically skip right over this, but uh, it's just loaded, loaded with stuff that these people needed to hear in their context. I asked you in the beginning, how many of you feel our own cultural decline, the moral moral decline? We're moving into a place where these people exist. This is worth us listening to. It's worth listening to their story because we're heading that direction. Paul is thankful, he says. Thankful for what? Their partnership in the gospel. What does this mean? Partnership in the gospel. You may be familiar with the Greek term, koinonia, having things in common. uh, Many of your English translators use the word fellowship. The problem is fellowship moves away from what the word actually means. When we think of fellowship, what do we think of? Getting together for coffee. No, no, no. The idea of koinonia means you share all things in common and you protect each other, including your finances. So in Acts 2, for example, uh, after Pentecost, they sold, they started selling what they had to take care of each other. It's a far more in-depth, far more costly, extensive form of caring for each other than we typically practice in our own culture. This is not what we typically think of when we think of fellowship. So, just a hint. At some level, they are sharing and working together to reveal the gospel and God's grace to others. When you think of your relationship with DCC, are you a partner in the gospel? Or is your fellowship more social? It's for you to chew on. And finally, a slave prays for others. Look in verse 9. He says three things. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Love is not normally tied to knowledge and wisdom, or knowledge and insight isn't. That's not how we think about it. But that's how it was thought about in the, in the biblical times. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They are inseparable We can't separate them. 1 John argues, we read this several weeks ago, over and over again. If you say you love God and you hate your brother or sister, you are a liar. Then he goes on and says you are a murderer. Then he goes on and says you have deceived yourself. And then he goes on and says the truth is not in you. And then he goes on and says you are not a follower of Jesus. You cannot separate love from insight and wisdom. One of my favorite quotes is in a book that the elders read on intergenerational ministry, the opening line. If you want to be shaped in Christ, sit with the elders, break bread with them, and listen to their stories. You should sit with our elders and ask about their stories. Every one of them has incredible stories of faith. You see, they've been around the block many times. Wisdom 
is so inbred into them they don't even realize it. I trust our elders with my life because of where they have come and what they have been through and the wisdom that God has created. Like I said, many of them don't even know it. If you ask them if they're a wise person, they kind of laugh. and like, what? But when you hear the stories, you find out it's true. And the blend of wisdom and love is what produces true servanthood. Otherwise, it's purely academic. It's purely academic. So why would he want this love to abound? Verse 10. Uh, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Okay, you see in the Roman Empire, the, their moral issues were just as confusing and blurry as ours are today. But Paul longs for them to know the difference. That's wisdom. To know the difference between right and wrong. This is the direct result of the Holy Spirit combining this knowledge and wisdom and love together. They come together to form something wholesome in a church fellowship, in a church body, where we sacrifice for one another and we learn what it means to really live in a culture that is shifting so quickly we can't keep up with it. And yet that's what we're called to do. And finally he says in verse 11, continuing his prayer, what he's praying for, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. A fruit-bearing, abundant life. There's that word righteousness right there. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. We're going to look at nuances of this word as we move further and further through the epistle. But let me just say this. The word righteous, in a very simple way, is God is putting to rights, through His Son Jesus, all that is wrong with the world. And how does He do that? Through our lives. We become the instruments for God to put to rights what is wrong. We care about our marriages. We care about our children. We care about our grandchildren. We care about our aging parents. We care about a court system that may not be doing justice well. We care about presidents. We care about Congress. We care about all of that. We care about what is right. That's why he's praying for this abundant fruit of righteousness. We live our lives well, and that has an impact in the world. Okay, let's give you a couple of closing thoughts. What does this mean for us? First of all, our lives together demonstrate grace, peace, and love. It's what we do together. You could be the greatest thing in the world, but if DCC has a bad rap, your testimony is not going to be very powerful. Your testimony is far more powerful because we as a church develop a good reputation in our community alongside of our lives, and we work very hard at that. That's something we pay attention to. Secondly, learn as much as you can about God. Learn as much as you can. I was at Dallas Seminary two weeks ago speaking in their Hebrew class. And the students by this time in their Hebrew class are, are asking, why do I have to learn a Hithpiel stem indicators for this verb? Only Mark knows what I'm talking about. Judy was in the last service. <laughs> right? It seems like such a waste of time. They want to get out there and do ministry. And I told them, the moment God decided to communicate in language, Hebrew and Greek became the most important verse you're ever, classes you're ever going to take. Oh, your programming classes on how to do ministry are very exciting and they're fun, but 20 years from today, you won't follow one of the principles you learned. Sometimes I read the principles from 20 years ago and we laugh. We don't do those today at all. But language doesn't change. 
Language is a communication. It's a medium of communicating God's love. That's why he said, your love will abound in wisdom and insight, knowledge. Learn as much as you can. Language is a critical part of growing to be a servant. And finally, being a servant takes work. It takes a lot of work. You have to make yourself available to the Lord. That may include cancer. It may include losing a wife. It may include losing a child. That hasn't happened to me, but it has to some of you. Yeah, it's going to involve work. It's going to involve some of the hardest work you've ever done. Because it's through that that the Lord reveals, through His servant, you, that the Lord reveals grace to those around you who are going through the same kinds of things. That's what the world understands, suffering. So do you really want to be a servant? Do you really want to serve? It's very costly. Father, thank you for serving us, sending your son. Thank you for that. Thank you for your deep, passionate, sacrificial love for us. And thank you for what you're making our church into. I love our church. I just love being out in the community, talking to people about DCC. It doesn't matter to me if they know you or not. I just love talking about you in our church. Thank you for making us into something golden, something wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. Who are you thankful for?